Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Kay, and I use pronouns like she and her. And I'm Pastor Emily. Wait, no, I'm <laughs> And my pronouns are they, them, or none. Hi, my name is Pastor Adam. I use pronouns like he and him. Awesome. In this episode, we'll discuss the third Sunday after Epiphany, also known as Lectionary 3, which this year falls on January 22nd. So a few content notes for this episode. We talk about religious abuse and trauma from violence and also all that stuff wrapped in with militarism in our deep dive. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. Also, a special thank you to our beloved guest host, Pace, for joining us while Emily is taking a week off to handle a family emergency. Thank you, Pace. Oh, always happy to be here. So this week, as we dive into the military and ministry, we're excited to have special guest, Reverend Adam Dowd. Wow, thank you. Yay. Yay. Adam is a pastor in the ELCA in the Metro Chicago Synod, a father of two kids, spouse of rostered minister L. Dowd. He is interested in social justice and community organizing as a way of building God's coming kingdom on earth. Thank you for being here. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to do this with y'all. Yay. We are so glad to have you. We are doing a deep dive today into military and ministry because the Isaiah reading for this week heavily implies that the military is directly involved with everything that it's talking about and is going on in that passage. Mm. It's not directly said, but it's pretty clear that the military is very heavily based. And we wanted to make sure to pay attention to this important aspect of life and a life of faith for so many people, not only in America, but also around the world. So Adam, we're glad to have you with us. And you are a military veteran. Can you tell us a bit about your time serving? Yeah, yeah. I was an ROTC grad. So that means I did like ROTC during college. So I was taking classes and I have like a military science minor for four years at Iowa State. And then when I graduated, I did, you know, basic, not basic training, but basic officer leaders course, which took me to Georgia for a bit. My first duty station was in Fort Irwin, California for about three and a half years. And I served in Missouri at Fort Leonard Wood for three and a half years. I was a army engineer captain, which set me apart from the majority of the military. And the fact that I had an officer rank and got all the special privileges that went along with that. So sorry for any enlisted folks. I always apologize because officers kind of (laughs) suck. My grandpa introduced himself to the day he died as I'm a sergeant. I work for a living. Don't call me, sir. Yeah. When everybody's like calls you, sir, or like, hey, sir, how you doing? I was like, I work for a living. Yeah. I mean, that's a super common thing. And they do like soldier, like enlisted people, they work. And I can tell you stories about like the really ridiculous work that they're asked to do on our behalf. And like not things like even going to war, but just like complete waste of tax dollars and time. And it's it's really a shame. I was an engineer, but I spent a lot of time in the logistics and operations portion of it. It just happened to be that the engineers in California were rolled up under the support battalion, meaning if you needed meals or anything like that, you needed your porta johns cleaned. Like I was the guy to call and I would make sure that you like got somebody out there to clean out the porta potties or whatever that need to be done. And along with that, also like organized training for units and making sure that they were doing all that sort of stuff. And then when I was in Missouri, we worked on something called DSERF, which was like the government's answer to what if there's a national disaster that 
a National Guard unit in a certain state can't like respond to because they don't have the right, you know, equipment or whatever. And so we had a lot of engineers, military police and chemical was basically what made up the fourth maneuver enhancement brigade. And so we could respond to anything, you know, a hurricane. I think we were deployed once to New York in order to help like clean up with the hurricane that happened there. The engineers would put power back on, da, 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 da. The military police, while they're not able to actually do any policing, they can do like wellness checks for people and stuff like that. And you're like, chemical, why would we need those? Well, the United States was really concerned about being attacked by nuclear or biological warfare. And that's why you'd have the chemical core there was to decontaminate people as they were leaving, you know, zones that would have been contaminated and cleaning it up, which basically just means spraying a bunch of water on it and washing it away because that's the best way to deal with contaminants, I guess, according to the military. (laughs) Love it. Love it. So you were talking about how you started ROTC in college. Was there something that drew you to serve or be part of that program? Yeah, well, money. (laughs) I I consider myself economically drafted. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when my parents went through a bankruptcy in my senior year of high school, leaving them unable to like co-sign for loans. And because I was like a A B student or whatever, I was getting into schools, but like unable to pay for them. So I needed to find a way to pay for them. And my family has like a history of like, there's like some, a doubt has fought in every American military engagement or whatever. Like both of my grandfathers were in World War II. My dad joined the reserves during Vietnam, which like he didn't really tell me until later that it was like, I joined the reserves so I didn't have to go to Vietnam. And like, you know, I think it was a point of shame for him, but I'm like, you do what you got to to survive. And so him and my uncle both did that together. And then there's like, you know, a long history of like, and you know, whatever. So it was always like, oh, there's, you know, This is in my family. And I felt like, you know, when you're like 18, you're like, ah, man, I've been given so many opportunities. I had a great life, da, 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 da. Well, I'm cis white hat man. So of course, like white life was great, you know, like (laughs) other than my parents went through a bankruptcy, which I mean, mildly affected me, but for the most part, I didn't really know any different other than they couldn't sign for school loans, which was kind of aggravating. And like, I grew up in a, you know, Minnesota Hopkins high school. It was like, 99% 99% of my peers were all going to college. It was just expected sure. that's what you did. Yeah. And so like I ended up doing ROTC to get paid. And in some ways, I sometimes like say that was a God thing that they were able to, because I like went to school with enough money to pay for like a half of a semester. And then ROTC was like, oh, we'll get you two and a half year scholarship. And I was like, cool. Like we got you two and a half years. We're going to try and get you three. We got you three. We're going to try and get you three and a half. We got you three and a half. We're going to try and get you that semester you already paid back paid for. And it was because like my PMS, which is, I don't even remember what it stands for. It, it's not the, that kind of PMS. It's like uh, <laughs> right. professor of military science, mil- PMS, p- professor of military science was like a Christian guy or like, you know, a more conservative Christian guy and was like, Adam's such a great Christian boy. We got to get him in the military. And like, I was like, so it like served me. Yeah. And I was like, I had a pretty like conservative bent in my so, upgrowing pre-evangelical, even though I was part of the PCUSA, as part of the sure. Presbyterian church growing up, I my pastor was an army chaplain and like 
went to Iraq in when I was in high school. So like that was like, oh, this is something that like faithful people do as well. So Pace, to answer your question in like way too much detail. Yes, like, <laughs> I like felt like, a you know, like to give back to my country to like all that kind of gross language and stuff, but like to like do something to like, and I was like kind of an outdoorsy, whatever person anyway. I was like, oh, this sounds like it would fit me and I would have the skills and whatever. And like, it's my, been in my history. It's been in my, you know, my family's lineage. It's like, I see my pastor doing this. Like, this is a good and right thing that I should engage with and whatever. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, I had a financial need. So it ended up working out that way. But I was able to do ROTC, get my college paid for. And I was an art. <laughs> my major was in art, integrated studio arts. So like, I was the guy who was like in art classes on most of the days and then like, doing military science classes the other days and my military science like you know buddies were like why are you in art like aren't these things like <laughs> you're like hanging out with all those weirdos over in the art building <laughs> love it and then like my art friends would be like aren't you like a military guy like why are you here <laughs> and i was like i just like these things like you know this is i'm just here like why why can't i just exist or whatever but yeah, it sounds yeah. like a very adam driver kind of vibe that you were going for Oh, that could be. Yeah, that's a good, good, good poll. Adams are just generally good people, I would say. <laughs> that too, of course. The best, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now that I've thoroughly talked too much. No such thing. Stop being Minnesota nice. I say uh, as a exactly. recent resident of Minnesota from <laughs> the East Coast originally. So, like, I am way too direct for the people out here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've been in Minnesota for 10 years and being from Illinois, yeah, I scare people too. But thankfully, my husband is a native and so I've had a local guide, which helps. So, Adam, when you were still in the military, did you have much interaction with Christian ministries, whether via military chaplains themselves or other ministry efforts from outside the military? I will tell you a great story about my interaction with military chaplains. So as I'm joining the military, so in my senior year, junior and senior year of college, I was taking religious studies courses. They were taught by an atheist, late Dr. Hector Avalos, one of the greatest educators I've ever experienced. Al and I met in his class and like he really cared about people and just like wanted them to be them best selves and like think critically about the Bible and like taught me to think critically and which was like mind blowing experience at the time because that time I only believed there was like one way, you know, whatever. So I'm like going through this college thing and being like, wow, there's multiple ways to read the Bible and reading books and stuff. And like, I like started to have the like thought in my head that like, maybe God doesn't want us to kill our neighbors and that that doesn't fit Jesus's ministry. And so it was like, you know, like I'm already committed. I had already signed a seven year contract with the army. I'm like, how how can I, you know, I'm, I'm wrestling with these like, you know, whatever ideas of like, maybe, you know, fighting and killing people is not a great idea. And Jesus probably wouldn't want us to do that. And I'm like, so I went to a military chaplain in Bullock training in Georgia. And, you know, it was like a chaplain designed somebody for all the officers who are coming in and whatever. And I'm like, hey, can I sit down and talk with you? And he's like, yeah, come on in, Adam, have a seat, da, da, da. Really welcoming, really nice. And I like sit down and he's like, what do you want to talk talk about, Adam? And I was like, well, so I like kind of questions about like, you know, serving in the army and being a Christian and like, maybe God doesn't want us to do that. Like, maybe I'm a pacifist, like a like conscientious objector. 
And I like, what would it look like if I wanted to like apply to be a conscientious objector? Meaning I wouldn't carry any weapons in right. like in battle. Like my conscientious objector can still like serve in the military, but they just don't carry weapons, which neither do like, military chaplains, later down the war. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Like military chaplains don't carry weapons. They have somebody assigned to them to carry a weapon for them. Yeah. Like they literally have a sergeant who's like, Hey, sergeant, you carry a weapon and shoot people for the chaplain, which is like the military's way around that. So like the chaplain doesn't have to do it, but like just give him yeah. somebody to shoot somebody it, like mind blowing. Right. Like that's okay. Anyway, <laughs> he wel welcomes me in his office. He's really friendly. Sits down. I'm like, Hey, maybe I'm a conscientious objector. And his demeanor just like changed on a dime went from like smiling and happy. You could just physically see his face fall and he was like, oh, yeah, well, the process for that is I do a deep dive into your background. I talk to your parents. I talk to your pastors. I talk to any of your youth leaders. Da, 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 da. And while I'm doing this, you're pulled from all your training, which will put you behind all your peers. You won't graduate. You'll stay and you'll be on like staff duty, which is anybody in the military knows like staff duty sucks. You just sit behind a desk and basically like answer questions. It's like being a receptionist, but it's a 24 hour duty. So you're like frequently up really really late anyway so he's like threatening sure. me with like the worst jobs to being pulled out of my training so i would not advance with the, like the rest of my peers that i would spend a, and he's like i would have unlimited amount of time to conduct these investigations and like so you'll be staying in georgia until then i'm like i don't know anybody in georgia like i'm from the midwest all my family's in the midwest at that point or in california i'm like no thank you like i don't want to be here and he's like, and then I'll make a determination whether it's true you're, you know, a conscientious objector or not. And it's like, oh, cool. Thanks for that information. And I'll just think about that. And I'll come see you again when I make a decision on what I want to do. Knowing fully at that moment, I was never speaking to this chaplain again. And honestly tainted my, like, opinion of other military chaplains from there on out i wish that as an officer and working on a brigade staff like i was always interacting with chaplains and whatever and you know we're providing services in the field and stuff for soldiers and whatever i've met jewish chaplains i had an opportunity to meet a muslim chaplain which there was like two of at the time in sure. 2012 or something there was only two but we had it in fort Irwin. we had a translator company that they were their whole job was like to translate and surprise like the majority of them were muslims so like the muslim chaplain actually made a visit out to the middle of the mojave desert to come see us and so i got to like meet him and interact with him a little bit as well but my full perspective on chaplains is that like their goal is not to help you solve your religious issues like a normal pastor would to like help you wrestle with those things like their goal is to tell you that it's okay and that like fighting and killing people is fine that like there's a difference between murdering somebody on you know it like in like personal and being asked to by the government you know like just war theory and all of that and their job is to keep you quote unquote fighting fit like they don't want soldiers right. who like won't shoot or won't kill or whatever if needed because so they're like they want you fight like ready to fight ready to kill people as fast as possible and the same with like i mean chaplains are kind of like religious counselors i, I did some therapy through the military as well and found it to be very similar so then i paid for therapy to be done outside the military because 
it just felt like, I mean, there are some civilians that then are contracted by the military who are like pretty good in terms of army therapy, but like, sure. it's really like targeted toward being like, it's okay. All those worries and fears that you're having, all that stress, just shove that way down deep. It's not going to bother you. Like your goal is to get back out there, soldier. Like, I mean, we literally had, Elle and I went to like couples therapy one time and literally the therapist was like, hey, I know you have problems at home or whatever, Elle, but they're not as bad as what your husband's like experiencing because he's a soldier. So like, maybe you should just like be quiet and like try to like think of what it's like to be him for a while. And of course they were like, just started tearing and i was like okay we're done and we just like left and like in first 15 minutes in this like therapy session just we're like we're out we're done no thank you unsubscribe like not gonna happen and that like i mean that's basically how i felt the military chaplains i met were like there's a few i met one elca chaplain and he was like okay but i mean you're part of a mission that's the mission is to keep the soldiers fighting so like you know, even then it's, it's, the, you can't serve God and the military might be another quote from Jesus today, I would guess. <laughs> perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps. I feel like the next question has already been answered. So I, I think we can probably skip that one. Oh, what was the next question? <laughs> well, I was going to ask, do you feel that your faith related needs were met while you were serving? Yes. <laughs> Not through the military though. Like I was in a tiny little church out in the Mojave desert. Shepherd of the Desert in Barso, California. They're like the one ELCA slash Episcopalian church. Like they neither church, the Episcopalians and Lutherans weren't big enough to call a pastor by themselves. So like they together called a pastor, Pastor Lily, whose spouse was like an old retired Air Force guy. And, you know, I asked one time, I asked Pastor Lily, I'm like, why do these veterans, why do people in the military, like, why are they so just like, bought into militarism and all that and she's like and like the horrible things they go through and she's like i i have to tell you this because it's the most important thing i ever heard was because it has to mean something adam the terrible things that like they do or are asked to do or whatever like like some of them can't walk some of them you know have like life altering you know disabilities which like now i have disabilities because of military service like it has to have meant something because if it didn't then they went through a trauma and like your brain doesn't want to process that. And I was like, Oh, that's really and like so much, so many more things began to make sense of like why people are just so like, I served and, blah, 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 and like, they're just like hell bent on that because to recognize otherwise would like destroy your psyche and like your brain's designed to protect you from that. Yeah, absolutely. So now that you've left military service for a while now, you've been working with Veterans for Peace. Can you tell us a bit about what they do? Sure. Veterans for Peace is a group that organizes with military veterans and their allies, and their collective efforts are to build a culture of peace using their experiences and talking about their time in military service and not just like being like, oh, it's so great and grand and da 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 da, but like really telling like the true story and what it's cost them. And, you know, how that's impacted them, impacted their lives, impacted their families. And then they have seven, you know, goals or seven, you know, other like things that they're trying to do. But like they try to increase public awareness about the costs of war, which I talked a little about. They try to prevent governments from intervening both overtly and covertly in the affairs of other governments. 
and other nations to resist racism and our repression in our home communities to oppose militarization of the law enforcement in this country and other countries as well yeah. to the end and the arms race and eventually hopefully get rid of nuclear weapons as like a threat towards other countries but and, and like a threat to our own lives honestly to seek justice for veterans and the victims of war that's which i think is really great like veterans are yeah. like friends for pieces like yeah very victim focused and recognizing veterans as victims of like a militaristic industrial complex and so i think that's like a good mind shift or like shift in perspective and then finally to abolish war as an instrument of national policy like just not using war as a way to solve our nation's problems yeah that's fascinating. And I kind of relate to that, I guess, is what are some of the struggles that come with military service from the perspective of a service person, but also from the perspective of someone now working for peace? Yeah, I mean, I think I talked a little bit of this at the beginning, but saying like, I don't think you can love your neighbor while shooting at them. I, it, you That's just can't. Fair. There's no way to I love. Yeah, there's <laughs> like, there's no way to lovingly kill somebody, right? Or to lovingly like, engage in war with them so that's like the biggest what was the question the struggles of military service from your perspective now working for peace yeah yeah thanks yeah i mean from that that's from a like christian perspective would be like you can't love your neighbor while actively trying to hurt them or repress yeah. them or you know make them bend to your will that's not aligned with the teachings of jesus in the bible and i think it's pretty clear but you'd be surprised that people don't get that sure I think it was for, Terry for. Crews who had a line that you can't love and control a person at the same time or something like that. And it sounds right. a lot like what you just said. Yeah. Yes. So I was once challenged with the like idea of like, yeah, you know how we say like, oh yeah, like, this is what God wants for the world and all these sorts of things. And, like God wants peace. God wants wars to end all the good things in Isaiah 2, 2, 4, like wars to cease to be war no more, all those things. But then we keep doing it. And like by continuing to do war and the efforts of like militarization, do we think we know better than God? Mm. Like, do we actually really believe what Jesus says when he's like, turn the other cheek? Now there's a lot of interpretations of that verse, those verses or whatever. But like any of Jesus's, you know, ministries, like frequently we like listen to him. We're like, yeah, that's good. We get it, God. Like you're perfect and holy and Jesus. Yeah, of course you can do those things because you're the son of God. And like you can do that. But like, that's not real life. Like, you don't know what real life was. Like, Jesus didn't really come and die on the cross and was a victim of like state violence and abuse. And, you know, like the list goes on. Like Jesus, like it completely negates the incarnation and like just basically says we know better than God. And when I was asked that question, you know, in my college years, I was like, dang, I have been thinking that I know better than God. And like that rang so true for me of like, yeah, well, that's like the ideal, but like, that's not how life really works here on earth. Like God doesn't know what it's like to be on earth and live under oppression. I, I yeah. mean, Jesus yeah. lived during the Roman occupation of Israel. So his interaction with the military would not have been a pleasant one. And also they're the ones that killed him. <laughs> so yeah, that's complicated. And I mean, there is plenty of military well, violence sure. in the Bible, but also like it's either the Israelites trying to not get murdered by their neighbors or it's people, you know, colonizing or stealing from their neighbors. And God is usually pretty enthusiastically against those. 
So Right. I mean, the Bible is a story about like who we are and how we understand ourselves in relation to God. And we see that change over time, right? And so, like I said, you know, it has to have meant something. Right. You know, the majority of the Bible is written post-exile anyway. So like all those stories of Moses and everything and Joshua and all those wars and all that horrible genocide and stuff that was supposedly like commanded by God is like people reflecting back on their history and being like, uh, what's the meaning? What did God actually want for us? Well, this must have been ordained by God because I guess it kind of worked out for a little bit and like, you know, read to our arise and then meteoric fall eventually. But, you know, like people are trying to make meaning out of some really bad thing. And so it's like not that hard to imagine that looking back on the history and being like, oh, I think God actually meant us to do that. And it's like, well, mm, no, but that's your interpretation, you know, of looking back on history. I think that's a, an important thing to remember of like the early biblical writers were like trying to figure out who they are in relation to God in respects of the their whole history and just coming out of, you know, slavery and, and oppression themselves. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder, you have such a awesome insight into the biblical text and all of those things. And, and I also know, how much you and Elle have been in part of like uprisings and grassroots sort of movements for justice and stuff like that. And I wonder, did being in the military inform moving into that work or is that something that was like in contrast to that work or how would you kind of see those pieces? I would actually get in trouble sometimes because while I was living in Missouri, Elle was the youth missioner to the Episcopal Diocese of Missouri during the time in which Michael Brown was killed and murdered by the police. And so we were like going to these protests and being involved. We have black children. Like this was very meaningful for us to like, and a shift in our whole, you know, like read Elle's book, Baptized in Tear Gas, you'll get it. But like, this was a shift in our thinking and our theology as time was coming on. And like, when L would get, you know, intentionally arrested and would be processed and whatever, they'd be like, Oh, where do you live? Oh, you live in St. Robert. That's kind of by Fort Leonard Wood. Are you married to like, in like asking her these like questions in a nice way. Now she knows better now, but like they were like trying to figure out, Oh, is your husband in the military? And then when they did, they like feds called down to, to the army and we're like, Hey, you have a soldier who's like out here in the streets of Ferguson and, you know, like protesting at the federal building in, you know, St. Louis, like get them under the control. And so like came down the chain of command that like Captain Dowd was like, or, you know, a rabble rouser or whatever. Thanks be to God that my direct supervisor at the time was a big motorcycle dude and was like involved in a motorcycle club, which most of us now call motorcycle gangs or whatever, but like he understood the perceptions, not everything. And like, it was like, listen, sure. if you go, just don't be in military, like don't dress like the military. Don't, you're not representing the United States army at all. Like, I, I don't necessarily agree with the, what you're doing, but you know, first amendment rights and da, 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 and all that sort of stuff. Sure. And like, I get it. I've also had some like people think things about me just because I'm like in a motorcycle club and yada, yada. And so he was like able to like tap into some like empathy and be like, give me some grace so that I wasn't getting in more trouble, which is like just hysterical. Cause like, not me. I wasn't the one being arrested. I wasn't anything. It was like my spouse and they were sure. like trying to like get, you know, it, wild stuff. But in terms of like 
Did military service inform like becoming involved in that movement? Like if we hadn't been in the military, I don't think I ever would have moved to St. Louis if I wouldn't have moved or moved, you know, into Missouri in the first place and been been there at the time of the, you know, uprising around Michael Brown and you know, like talk to those people and, and engage with them. So like in some ways the military like brought us to these different places where we wouldn't have gone otherwise, which I like, I tend to tend to lead into like, well, God led us to these weird places where we're like, we were led into Barstow, which is a little desert town, but like found healing through our Luther Paleon congregation out there. Sure. Both of us were like struggling with you know pastor l talks about like being kicked out of her home congregation because she asked too many questions about the 2009 decision in the elca and then being like maybe you'd be happier somewhere else and me being like going from being super conservative to being like maybe everything i was taught as a kid or like that there's only one way to read the bible isn't true and like kind of being like i don't know where i feel about religion and being like ministered to in the desert a place where the military took us or alternatively god and then going to missouri where like i would never would have gone to missouri for any other reason but like there god worked through this like wherever the military was taking us and like led us to organizing and then through organizing through community action that was taking place in ferguson a deeper much deeper understanding of what was going on in the bible and really like I mean, during Jesus's time, Jesus's ministry, like how grassroots he was, how the way Jesus interacted with his disciples, with his community was much, much more like anything you see on the, I was seeing on the streets of Ferguson than, you know, in the community organizers, the people from Ferguson that were there and now, you know, in other places since than anything I experienced in the military. Yeah. So what about the faith needs of veterans? How can Christians who are civilians better help veterans with their faith just out here in the ordinary world? It's really challenging. It's hard to be like, you're a victim of the military industrial complex because nobody wants to hear that, right? Like they have to be ready to hear it. It has to be on their own terms. But like the best way that you can help veterans and people in military service is like, opposing anybody who is war hungry any like defense spending because inevitably that money goes to you know northrop grumman other arms manufacturers like a lot of people don't know this but like we buy tanks every year whether or not we need them yeah because if we stop making tanks then if there was a you know we never need a tank who that's ridiculous but like from the u.s's perspective of like well, if we need to fight a war, we need to have the infrastructure set up to build tanks. So like, we're going to continue to like pay these contractors to make tanks, a lot of them, so that if we did need to have a full-scale war with, you know, China or Russia, like we would have the infrastructure there and ready to go. So like we're buying constantly all this military equipment that we really don't need for any reason other than just like have it there just in case. So we spend tons and tons, like so much of our budget is all military spending that could be so much better used in like funding schools or healthcare and really making an impact on people's lives instead of like lining the pockets of arms manufacturers. Well, and I've been seeing news stories recently about the Pentagon being completely unable to pass their own audits, which they've only been asked to do for like the last five years or something like that. So that's a little concerning. So like, here's another story. I showed up 
to my first platoon, right? And my platoon sergeant's like, here, you got to sign for all this property. It was like $6 million worth of equipment or something like that. And like, you have the major end item. So like a, it's not a tank, but you know, engineers don't have tanks, but like for argument's sake, like this vehicle, right? right? And then it's supposed to have all this equipment with it. Like, hammers you know ratchets just a whole bunch of stuff that goes with each vehicle for whatever its purpose backhoes you know all that all that good digging equipment with that i had in the my engineering company and i was like so where's all the other equipment they're like we don't have any of that sir and i'm like what do you mean you don't have any other equipment like you don't have axes that are supposed to go on this vehicle and da, da, da. and they're like nah it's lost or whatever don't worry about it just sign for it which like I shouldn't have done, but I was a fresh second lieutenant and could have gotten me in a lot of trouble. So I was really lucky at Fort Irwin that like, I thought I was going to get, be in a lot of trouble, but the government just like wrote us a blank check to buy all the stuff that we were missing because like it was a systemic problem that like so much of our equipment was missing that they were like, we're not even going to try and take inventory of this. We're just going to like write you a check and you just buy all the equipment you want. Jeez. Yeah. Yikes. It just keeps going on. You're running into this problem of where you ask a veteran about military service and they just kind of can't shut up because like we all do it. <laughs> you talk to any veteran, they will just go on and on and on and on and like not, not be able to stop. I talk a lot as a person individual, like normally, but like add that veteran into it and like ask me about military stuff. I'm like, Oh, let me tell you my experience. You know, and it just like starts come pouring out. I mean, we appreciate that's why you're on the podcast. We want to hear all that. <laughs> so thank you. I have two last questions, but they're kind of related. So, and it's really about this notion of nationalism and patriotism. And so in the on the one hand, I know that it's kind of this tool meant to help with recruitment and with war efforts and stuff like that. But is it actually serving and supporting people in the military? And then the second thing with that is like, and I think you kind of already answered that is like Christian patriotism and nationalism is a big thing in this country. And is that really, from your perspective, a authentic way of understanding the gospel? So $15 at Applebee's isn't going to do anything for veterans, right? Like, it's really nice to like, oh, thanks, whatever. And, you know, all that stuff. And like, who doesn't want free food? But like, in the long run, like military veterans are dying from suicide at like extreme rates. Many of us have PTSD and then therefore are in deep, deep struggles. Many end up unhoused for one reason or another. And despite there being like tons and tons of programs for veterans, it's like, it's still, it's still just a huge, huge struggle for veteran communities. So really the best things, I, I think I tried to say this in the last question, but like the best thing you can do for veterans and for, for people serving the military is like oppose war efforts. Because like there are some people in the military that will be like, yeah, yeah, I want to go to war. That's what I've been training to do. Like, in a, in a, sorry for a sports analogy, but like if you train for a certain thing your whole life and never get to do it, it'd be like training for a, you know, a sports event and then never getting to be a part of that sports event or like practicing for a musical it would be another example. Like you train, you know, your lines, you're like ready to, you know, like I've sung the songs like whatever, like I'm ready for this musical and just like constantly waiting and never happening. And so there's like people in the military who are like, yeah, let's like go to war. Yeah. I'm like all revved up because they've been training for it their whole lives and they've never had an opportunity. So they're like ready to go or they think they want to, because it's like what they were, 
told they should, you know, that's what they work towards. So the best, but the, the reason I'm saying don't send them to war is because I mean, it's a traumatic experience. I <laughs> once was, we were out driving one night with not even in a training scenario or whatever. We were, I think we were just heading back to our like fob or whatever with one of my sergeants and we were just talking and having a general conversation and he just like started white knuckling it. And I'm like, sorry, are you okay? And I looked over at him. He's like, I'm fine, sir. And I'm like, what's, what's going on? And he's like, we're just driving through a fireball. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like the desert at night. And he's like, just a flashback. I'll be okay. Just give me a second. And I'm like, you need to go see your therapist. Like that's not normal. He's like, no, I'm okay. And so like, you know, even if you have a very mundane deployment, it's still like a year away from family, a year, like that's hard, right? Like that's yeah. a hard situation to be away from your family. Even for a week is like a big, big sacrifice, even for a weekend. And to ask people to be gone for six months or more up to a year or longer, if you get extended, right? Like that's a really long time. And to be in a constant state of like, people are trying to actively kill you, you know, yeah. is a long time. Like, I know like black and brown communities understand this, like the constant threat of like everything around them trying to kill them, whether it's other, you know, like whether it's the police or just society in general, or like the competition for the very few resources that that community has that causes people to like fight for them. Like it's not a good thing for your mental health. It's been proven in, in studies that like that constant stress like that really screws up your brain, really screws up your biological processes. The best thing we can do to like support veterans and stuff is, is to not vote for militaristic policies. Sure. I don't know if that answers the question, but I was something I really wanted to say and make sure that I got out there. No, I, I think you did a great job. I think job. you answered it. Absolutely. Yeah. I also feel like I should throw out there that the concepts of patriotism and nationalism, we could do a whole separate deep dive just on those or on one. And so we're, we're not going to be able to address that in any real depth, Yeah, but it's natural yeah. to touch like, on those. Uh, here's another great, another quick, really easy thing is like, I don't meet very many veterans who like fireworks, right? Right. Like there are many, like I remember talking with many of my veteran friends when I was in Missouri, many of the guys who work for me. And I'm like, what are you guys doing for the 4th of July? Da, 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 da. And I had not been combat deployed at that point. Right. I, and I never was. Thanks be to God. Like somebody was looking out for me. Somehow I served seven years from 2009 to 2016 without ever being deployed. That's a whole other story that I can get into. And there's some like, I have some weird shame around that because of like other people did it. And I'm like, why didn't I have to? And whatever. That's a whole other conversation. But the point is getting back to like, they were like, I'm like, what are you guys doing for 4th of July? And they're like, nothing. I'm staying at home and drinking. And I'm like, I do not want to be out there. I hate people who light fireworks because it's like, sends me into flashbacks and all these sorts of things. And like, they won't tell normal people that. Sure. If you read the body, body keeps score, or soul repair, two books that are like very helpful in understanding veteran psyche. Like you, you'll know that like they, they can't tell those things to like the average person off the street because they're like embarrassed or like they don't want to be othered or whatever and be like, eh, actually fireworks kind of freak me out. Like sure. that makes them seem like in a whole profession that's designed to like make you as like macho or whatever the you know, societal expectation for masculinity is in this country. Like that 
goes against it. Being afraid of fireworks is like not that. So like they will be like, no, I'm fine, you know. But then we have every celebration, sports events, all that sort of stuff has like tons of that stuff. And frequently sure. it's like, what does fireworks and this have anything to do with what I was asked to do and what I did in other countries? And I think that's a really true sort of reflection. There's great documentaries out there about that type of stuff too. I can't think of the names of them off the top of my head, but. Yeah. So our first reading for this episode is from Isaiah chapter nine, verses one through four. Despite recent struggles, God promises the Northern tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali an upcoming time of glory and joy. And as we move into the verses, I was particularly struck by verse number two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. And we've talked before on this podcast about the importance of being careful about our light and dark language, especially in worship and in religious settings, and avoiding racist implications or just outright racist statements, which happen way more often than we're used to thinking about. But sometimes it is true that walking in actual real-life darkness is a actual real-life problem. And the story I like to tell about that is that I once tripped over a metal campfire grill while I was walking around a campfire at night in order to get my flashlight, which felt horribly ironic. The whole, I was <laughs> trying to get my flashlight so I wouldn't trip over things, and that was when I tripped over something. And I wound up with this incredibly deep cut in my shin, and it kind of ruined my week at camp. But it also reminded me of the Chronicles of Riddick prequel movie, Pitch Black, which illustrated many of the dangers of walking around in the dark. Although happily on this planet, we don't really have to deal with light-hating carnivorous pterodactyls. So that's definitely helpful. Truth, truth. I do just want to say I love that movie, Pitch Black. Yeah. I don't really like the Chronicles of Riddick series overall, but... That Black went some very weird that. places. Yeah, but that first movie so, was pretty good. Right, right. But also, I have to represent for the, all the horror fans out there that just horror references abound in this verse. I'm thinking especially oh, I'm of the movie like The Descent, where they go, mm. a group of like spelunkers, I guess, <laughs> go down into this cave. And then like slowly, of course, the lights go out and stuff like that. And it just is a really creepy, effective movie. So, oh, love that one. Sure, sure. I think we can think of like the darkness as like more the unknown too, you know, as maybe another way because yeah. not only isolating our siblings of color or like our people who are vision impaired or like for our blind community people as well, like not understanding light and dark, like just being like unknown, like this thing is an unknown to me. And sometimes stuff that's like unknown is very, very scary, very, you know, anxiety producing. And I think that if you you know, think about Isaiah and the time that this was written and the position and, and what is happening in these Northern tribes, like they're in a uncertain unknown time and they're very fearful of, for what the future may hold, which like, wow, that really resonates with me as a Christian living in the, you know, 2023, like the future is like super uncertain, not only in our country, but for the world. When you think of like global climate catastrophe, when you're looking at what's going on in Australia and California, mm. everything around that, and it just is relatable. Even in war-wise too, like if you think about the conflicts in Eritrea and, and Ethiopia and, and Ukraine and Russia, I mean, we're constantly trying to get in pick fights with people in the United States because it serves 
you know, a certain few individuals who make a lot of money whenever war happens. So it's this, the Bible, man, it, it hits you so hard in these, these moments that it like, it's so relatable. Even you share these feelings and emotion with people from thousands of years ago. Yeah. yeah. And then we move to our epistle reading, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 18, where Paul encourages the followers of Christ in Corinth to stop fighting between themselves and focus on what they have in common. They share in Christ's death and resurrection. And what stood out to me at this one is verse 11, when it says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters, and I love that the NRSV is leaving us NB folk out because we're too good to be quarreling. Mm. Like so I'm all <laughs> like the one time you want to be cut out of the verse, like oh, right. thanks for leaving us out there, NRSV. Yep, yep. I'm not. I'm too good for all y'all <laughs> cis binary folk quarreling. But anyway, I totally am getting Freddie versus Jason vibes from this. Again, I have to mm. shout out my horror fandom out there. But just this notion of like quarreling amongst yourself, not even like you spoke earlier, Adam, about like the idea of like quarreling, like fighting over limited resources and stuff like that, all the ways in which we are made to fight each other in ways that are not great still and have systemic reasons behind it. But here it's like not even that. It's just like these petty things like, oh, Paul baptized me, so I'm going to fight with you over that. <laughs> and that's totally pretty versus Jason kind of vibes like we're just going to fight for no reason because we can. Why not? Well, and it kind of sounds like Chloe's people are out there, you know, triangulating stuff and trying to start stuff. And so, like, maybe they're actually the cause of some of this. Oh, my God. I'm just saying. Having worked in churches before, Ooh, that sounds it, very familiar. It. <laughs> it just, like, sounds like politics or, like, whatever. Like, I don't know if that's just a human natural, like, we have to root for a team or something. Like, we have yeah. to work and win over somebody else it can't be like we win together like we should all be working for the betterment of everyone rather than like well i'm paul so like you know da, 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 like you know and i follow these lines like even though paul's screwed up in some places like i'm gonna ignore all those things and just so that like anybody that says they're from this person like and i'm gonna poop on them and you know like not let it's like y'all like we need to stop fighting each other and work together like we could all be collectively doing better if we like it's so upsetting that it just keeps happening that like they that even early christians were fighting about this and we still have not figured this out like thousands of years later yeah 100 yeah and then in verse 14 we read i thank god that i baptized none of you except for crispus and gaius and this verse always sounds to me like Paul is having his Han Solo, it's not my fault moment. <laughs> Except then in a, another very Han-like moment in the verses after this, he realizes a minute later that, oh yeah, actually I did also baptize those other guys in that house over there. But still, most of you are not my fault, is his <laughs> overall point. And I just, it is, again, so relatable. I have absolutely been there. And yet, like maybe this isn't the most important point to be making right now, Paul. I'm just saying. Mm, it's Paul. He can't help it. <laughs> can I? But can I also just mention verse 17, where Paul sure. says, "Like I didn't do this with wisdom or eloquence," and like just totally lets all of us pastors off me, like <laughs> off the hook of having to be eloquent or wisdom, like love it, wisdom at all. Like, yes. You know, like I'm not a super big Paul guy, but like, oh, thanks, Paul. Yep. <laughs> 
the gospel is sufficient in itself and I don't have to be good or, you know, like super wise or insightful. It'll, it'll take care of itself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been working up a list of verses I want to like embroider to have on my wall. And I think I'd get some weird reactions with that one. And yet it still really does fit, doesn't it? Like, I think that should be on my office wall. That sounds great. (laughs) And then our gospel reading for today is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 23. John the Baptist is arrested, and Jesus retreats to the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali for a time, before emerging with a message of repentance. As he begins his public ministry, he recruits his first disciples to fish for people. And so in verse 16, we read, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region of and shadow of death, light has dawned. And since Emily isn't here, I feel that it falls on me to make the requisite Lord of the Rings reference. And so if mm-hmm. when you read this verse, if you also see Gandalf on Shadowfax bringing a ray of light with him as he and the dawn descend into the army in the dark at Helm's Deep, you are not alone. I, I certainly also think of that moment from the second movie. I am also just going to say I'm glad that when you mentioned a certain wizard's name, my dog did not pay attention to his <laughs> name because he would have totally, I think he's asleep, thankfully. But anyway, yes. verse 22, though, I love this line of immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him, which I just love. Like, oh, we're just going to like peace out. No, nope, not going to worry about anything. Just <laughs> leave a boat. Dad, like wondering like what the heck is going on but it makes you think of the godspell movie with victor garber mm-hmm. when the prepare the way the lord song is going and everyone just like stops what they're doing i love the one woman who's in the library like making copies of books she just like leaves the book on the copy and just like i'm just gonna go so i just love that <laughs> image of like drop it like it's hot go go follow cool can i tell you my zebedee and sons of zebedee spiel because like i am absolutely so i was in one of our classes during seminary and we were like one of the larger like mandatory classes and a lot of my peers started talking about like well i had to like zebedee that and just like get up and leave and like you know (laughs) like not do what my father was telling because like one either my dad sucked or you know for whatever reason like and like then another person would chime in and be like, yeah, I had a similar experience where like my family or my dad or my whatever. And then another person would be like, yeah, my dad was really whatever, whatever. And like, I'm a dad, a 15 year old now at the time, like 12 year olds. And I was like, oh my God, like, I do not want this to be my kids who are like, you know, 20 years down the road being like, well, my dad was always a a a-hole. And so I like left him, you know, mouth agape, like, wandering to go follow Jesus because he wasn't doing that. And so I like really started dig into like Zebedee and like that read the story in comparison with the other stories in the Bible. And we all like have this, or I don't know if we all do, but like I originally pictured like Zebedee's mouth, just like jaw dropped speechless that his sons were like leaving and going off and, and going to follow Jesus instead of like taking up the family business of fishing out on, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's, that's just like what goes to our head, but it doesn't say that anywhere. It doesn't say that like Zebedee was pissed or like disappointed or anything. That's just like, because our con like, that's so common in our context. We just read that into there. I was like, what if this is not how Zebedee is? Like, what if Zebedee was a good father? And like, because like, because of Zebedee, 
his sons were able to go off and follow mm. Jesus, right? Like, what if he was supportive and they pause and they look back and they're like, but can I leave my dad here with the fishing and like my mom, you know, if you, if you follow Eastern Orthodox tradition and faith, like Mary Salome is the spouse of Zebedee, which makes James and John like Jesus's cousins. And then like Peter and his younger brother are also like co, you know, fisher people with that. So like, it's like a family thing for them. And like, Jesus is like taking them away to go off. And like, if it's like, instead of them, like being like dad being pissed, dad's like, no, like go follow the Messiah. I've got this, like, I'm going to support you in your, and, and going off and to follow and change the world. Like, I want you to make the world a better place than the one that it is now. And like you following Jesus is going to do that. If man, if we had more dads in the world that were like, listen, I got it. Like, I want more for you than what I had. I want you to be able to follow Jesus and Jesus is calling. And like, sure. don't worry about me and mom. Like, we'll support you. Like, we'll send money. We'll make it possible for you to do these things. Completely reimagines that story of Zebedee from being like a story where like everybody's picturing, you know, their dad just like, I can't believe they did that into <laughs> like, no, go. Like, I've got this. I've got you. Like, I'm so proud of you. Like, absolutely. You should be following Jesus because that's sure. like, what we should be doing right i love that anyway that's my my zebedee reimagining spiritual well, imagination if they were jesus's cousins that means that jesus's ministry was the other family business right oh so maybe they go. still were in the family business just the other one <laughs> right true right but yeah that's a really fun interpretation out of that and i guess awkward tr transition time this is a hallmark on my podcast partners at church is we have awkward transitions. So I'm just going to bring that energy here to nerds at church and just awkwardly transition to our wackiest segment. Let's make a Muppet musical. So if you were to cast anybody as a Muppet from any of the readings we've done, or if you were to cast anybody as the one human character who's surrounded by Muppets, like who, who would you see for any of the readings? I really like, like Miss Piggy in the, if you're taking the traditional or like the, you know, what we mostly imagine Zebedee as like jaw dropping and like, just like, can't believe, I really like imagining like Miss Piggy just like, and like, just like totally upset that like Love it. her little, like I imagine Kermit and Miss Piggy have like they do in the Muppet Christmas Carol, like that combination of like frog and, and pig kids. Yes. Those are the true genders in the Muppet universe. Yep. <laughs> they're like, they're just like, you know, like, so I guess that makes like James and John's like one's a pig and one's a frog. And I guess Kermit <laughs> in this imagination is Jesus. <laughs> love it. Love it. Nice. I could totally like, I'm, I'm picturing the Pauline verse and just like all the quarreling. Cause there's so much quarreling that happens in the Muppet movies and just all the wacky <laughs> violence of all the Muppets. Like, Paul, whoever Paul is, like the one human character, just leaves a room for a second, and then when he comes back, all of a sudden there's like the room is complete chaos as all the Muppets are fighting <laughs> and flying through the air and stuff. Till he's it's stuck. like the Muppet band, like Animal and Janice and whatever their yeah. other names are, sure. just totally chaos. Love it, Absolutely. love it. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about as you were describing Adam, the idea of Zebedee being, you know, proud of his sons and wanting to send them off in style and all that. I was thinking, I think for as far as Muppets go, my favorite 
supportive like father figure sending someone off would be Fozzie Bear. Mm. Fozzie Bear has a, a real tendency to care about and want to like look after people. And no, so I could totally no. see him in the supportive Zebedee role. Absolutely. So Adam, do you have any other thoughts on life, the universe and everything? Go read the book Dune. If you haven't read Dune, <laughs> it's fantastic. Excellent. Yes. So Absolutely. good. Agreed. It's like about ecology and I think is a is the forerunner for all that nerdy stuff of like Star Wars, Star Trek, even Game of Thrones, I think is all inspired by Dune. And you can make arguments that Dune has inspired pretty much every sci-fi movie since the 1960s. Well, and also I'm still rereading it, you know, probably 25 years after the first time I read it. And I still find new like inner motives and ulterior motives for every character. They all have like 14 different things they're trying to do and you only see half of them at in any one read through it's amazing well and it's impossible to follow anything right it's like it's so much going on intentionally written so that it would be confusing for the person Mm -hmm. to like jump in because that's what politics is like like you're you're trying to just like jump into the world of politics you're like what in the f is going on here (laughs) like this is so confusing and that like that energy is brought to it but like the author was a ecologist out in i think it's washington state and like notice the sand dunes and how they were constantly shifting and changing. And like you, so you see these real like repeated, he's really interested in like repeated patterns and tessellations, all that stuff. So that like patterns just repeating themselves and like is so beautiful in that book. It's so great. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I guess we are awkwardly transitioning to wrapping up, I guess (laughs) pace just bringing my awkward transition, but so thanks for joining us. listeners. Absolutely. Thank you both for having me here and letting me talk and do my veteran just like constant tell stories and like ramble and go. I know I talk a lot, so I apologize. But thank you so much for creating space for letting me like tell my veteran stories and exactly what we were hoping for. Yeah, wonderful. Yep. And if you're a horror fan, you're definitely welcome to tell more stories on Horror Nerds at Church someday. I do. I like my, my favorite horror stories are probably, I'm really into Dracula. Like I love Dracula and all the energy that Brahms Abram brings in in that. And then I also really like, like the walking dead. I thought find super interesting, especially as a post pandemic type of thing, because you know, zombies are all about like plague fear of like biological and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's really interesting to reflect on now that we're post pandemic or well, working towards trying to get toward post-pandemic. I don't know what to call it. <laughs> right, right. Late stage. Never ending. Yeah. yeah, also post. Yeah, also. Oh, God. But yeah, again, thank you. And listeners, thanks for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdy connections to the scripture readings for the fourth Sunday after Epiphany. This podcast was produced by Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Nerds at Church or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our uncut guest episodes and interviews, live Q&As, and more, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. It's cheaper than funding an entire military war effort. Most things are. That's true. I sure everything is yeah (laughs) right and then also let us know on facebook or twitter who you would cast for your let's make a muppet musical for this episode as the ancient christian said